Here's the thing, we're going to finish off the book of 2 Timothy this morning. So if you've got your Bible or your app, uh, go with me to the, the very last part of this little book of 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4. I want to capture um, the last couple verses of last week's text because I want you to sense the contrast that's going to go on between what Paul has just said and what he's about to teach us because that, that stark contrast is actually going to be really instructive all by itself. So the last few verses that Mark uh, taught us last week from 2 Timothy 4, look starting in verse 6. If you remember just the context, and if you're newer to Veritas, let me just catch up real quick before I read this, because this is actually the Apostle Paul's very last letter. Um, likely, he will, his mortal life will be snuffed out right, right after he gets done writing this, not, not long after. And he knows that it's coming, okay, so that, that death is imminent, it will likely be a painful, horrific death, he's already chained like a criminal in a terrible, terrible prison situation, and it's only a matter of time, okay? So I just want you to remember that context as these last words are, are being written out. So the, the verses that I, I wanted us to look at, starting in verse 6, he has this moment of just um, Christ-centeredness and worship when he says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time for my departure is close. And I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. And there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. I just imagine him in that cell as he's writing those words. Like, did he all of a sudden just have this like euphoric moment of recognizing what he's about to step into, right? Sometimes, I, I feel like I just discovered this this last week. Um, it's really cool truth. Sometimes God's people, when they're at their worst, like when the situation is at its absolute, where they are in their the most dire situation they maybe ever faced in their mortal life, God gives them this little glimpse of hope and what is yet to come, and it kind of carries them through. Um, theologians sometimes talk about this as a beatific vision. Okay, that's a really, sounds like a really old, old word, because it is beatific vision. Beatific, we get our word beatitudes from that, like the most blessed state. The situation couldn't be any worse and in the midst of that horrific darkness, this like hope, this beatific vision comes. And normally, that phrase is used about when you actually die and you open your eyes and, and you're with Jesus in that moment that like everything's over. But I think God gives some saints uh, like a, a preview of what is yet to come and it carries them through those last moments. So I started tracing this out. This was my idea, right, that I think is going on. started tracing this out, and you guys, you can actually see this very occasionally, very rarely throughout the Bible. Moses, I think, had this happen in, in the most difficult time. Can I just see you, Lord? And he allowed him to see him in the cleft of the rock, right? Uh, Joseph 
got to have this crazy dream when he's out running for his life. But I want you to look at the book of Job with me. Actually, I'll have this one on the screens because Job is maybe one of the most classic examples of this where, you know, Job is in a terrible, maybe by a human standard, almost the worst situation that is imaginable for a human to go through. And all of a sudden, in the midst of this, in Job 19, but I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the end, he will stand on the dust, like this earth. Even after my skin has been destroyed, yet I will see God in my flesh. I will see him myself. My eyes will look at him, and not as a stranger, a friend. Oh, my heart longs within me. Isn't that cool? Like, it's almost like Job is given this moment. Doesn't take his situation away. He's going to go right back into his dire situation. But in that moment, he's like, I know my Redeemer lives. I know what my future holds. In the New Testament, maybe the most clear example of this is when Stephen is about to get stoned to death in Acts chapter 7. So I have this on the screen as well. He has just given the gospel, and the people that are hearing him give the gospel are not happy. So in verse 54, it says, when they heard these things, they were enraged. They gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God, Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens open, the son of man standing at the right hand of God. They yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears together, rushed against him, dragged him out of the city, began to stone him. The witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus. It's like he's looking at Jesus. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Knelt down, then cried out with a loud voice. I want you to remember this. We'll come back to this. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he fell asleep. I... I want to give one more quote. It's not in the Bible, but kind of almost. Jonathan Edwards. (laughs) Jonathan Edwards spent a lot of time in the Bible, so a lot of his quotes are deeply anchored in the Bible. As he describes these moments, here's what Jonathan Edwards says. The pleasure of seeing God is so great and so strong that it takes the full possession of the heart. It, It fills it brimful like to the top so that there shall be no room for any sorrow no room in any corner for anything of an adverse nature from joy there is no darkness that can bear such powerful light now why do i bring all that up is because i think that's the experience of the apostle paul that he describes in second timothy 4 Right there, right before he's going to meet his end, when things are the scariest, darkest, he has this just vision of what he's about to enter into, and that's going to carry him through. And there's no room in those moments, those verses we just read, there's no room for sorrow. There's no room for fear, because all he can think of is the pure joy that's his in Christ, this beatific vision. So I don't know what happens between that last verse that we read from Paul, verse 8, and verse 9 that we're going to focus on today, I don't know if it's all of a sudden like one of his chains clanked and kind of brought him back to reality. You know, I don't know if all of a sudden the little trap door opened and a 
bowl of gruel got thrown into his jail cell or whatever, you know, but something happens and he's kind of brought back to the harsh reality of where he's at. And look what he says next. He says, oh, Timothy, make every effort to come to me soon. And I circled that soon. I, I, I just feel like, you guys, the harsh reality of what he's about to face is all of a sudden right before him again, and he needs Timothy with him. So here's where we're going with this text that, that I'll read to you now. Um, some of you have known those times where you're just in panic, um, fear, great sadness, whatever it is. Things are as, as dark for you as you can imagine. And in those moments, it's like the nearness of God is so real. You pray, have you had these moments? Like, if I open my eyes right now, I think I'll see Jesus. That's how real this moment is that Jesus is drawing so close to me. And then all of a sudden, you have to get off your knees. You have to come out of that moment and step back into the hard thing that you're at. But it doesn't make that moment, that mystical moment, an illusion. No, that's real. And God means for it to carry us along. But then the question is, how do we step back into that dark place? How, how do we make sense now? Okay, I got, I got that beatific vision. I got that moment, you know, take my breath away moment. But now, how do I deal with the life that is still in front of me right now? I think Paul is going to show us the way. That's what I believe the text for today is going to do, is Paul is going to show us the way. So I want to follow, follow his path as we continue on, and he kind of awakens back in the jail cell, awaiting his death sentence. So let me read the first few verses here, starting in verse 9. Make every effort to come to me soon, because Demas has deserted me since he loved this present world. He's gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Oh, oh, bring Mark with you, for he's useful to me in the ministry. Well, I've sent Tychicus to Ephesus. Oh, when you come, bring the cloak I left in Troas with Carpus, as well as the scrolls, especially the parchments. Okay, you're like, wow, that doesn't sound remarkable. <laughs> you know, you come off that mountaintop experience of those verses before. No, I think they are incredibly instructive verses. And the first point that I, I, I think is laid out here for us that I want us to meditate on is this. Guys, loneliness can be suffocating. We weren't meant to walk through trials alone. Paul is facing the greatest trial of his mortal life. And that's saying something. He's had a lot of them. He's facing the greatest trial, and all of a sudden, coming back out of that moment of prayer, he is lonely. And even this unbelievable super apostle, right, um, wants Timothy with him, wants his friend near him. And so here's what is crazy. In these few verses... Paul mentions eight names, eight names. Now that's, I think, noteworthy in and of itself. In this moment where he thinks, wait, I'm about to leave, but there's a lot of work to be done. We've been given this great commission to take the gospel to all nations. There's a lot of places yet to go. Guys, 
hear me on this. Paul is not thinking about dots on a map. Paul is not thinking about strategies. Paul is not thinking about any of that. In this moment, the only thing that comes to his mind are individual people. Isn't that cool? Like of all the things that he's got to make sure that Timothy hears, he starts listing all these individual people. You guys, that's right from the heart of Jesus. Jesus is the one that gave us this great commission. Take this gospel to the ends of the earth. But the way that he's going to do that is by forming these bands of brothers and sisters in Christ who are going to love each other deeply, who are going to find such a, a bond of fellowship together. Now, through that, those bands of brothers and sisters, the world is going to be turned upside down for Christ. The, the gospel is going to reach the ends of the earth, but it's going to come in these deep relationships where people love one another deeply and then give their lives to taking gospel to the ends of the world. So I actually made um, these columns, these lists. Uh, actually, one of the commentators had shown me this. I want to show you this magical. Is that just the greatest like graphic you've ever seen in your life? I think between Mark Aaron and I, we're going to take over graphics. Anyway, pretty simple stuff. Um, here's all the list, the, the names that you just heard. Here's the reason for the plus and minus signs. Some of these guys, those guys on the left, were faithful and true and loyal and in that band of, of brothers and have remained so. You've got Timothy, right? Obviously, the guy who he, whom he's writing to has remained faithful. Crescus, well, he's faithful. He's, he's not there just because he's off continuing the gospel proclamation to Galatia. Titus, who's been at Crete, has now been sent to Dalmatia. I don't know where, if that's where those cute puppies with you know, spots all over come from. I don't know, but he's off to Dalmatia. Luke, the faithful Luke, Dr. Luke is there with him, but Tychicus is off to Ephesus, maybe because he's going to relieve Timothy from Ephesus so that Timothy can come to help Paul. We're not sure exactly. Carpus off to Troas. Here's, so these are all the faithful ones, incredible, and remain so. Mark was unfaithful. This is John Mark from Acts 15. Now he's faithful. John Mark had abandoned Paul at one point earlier, many years earlier, but has come back roaring strong with his faithfulness and his, his um, devotion to Christ and to the band of brothers. And so how cool that we get a little bit of closure on that story because it, it was a difficult time when you read it in the book of Acts that, that all of a sudden even Paul and Barnabas had a fracture of relationship because of what happened to John Mark and him abandoning them. But now, isn't that cool? All is well. He's back in that band of brothers. Oh, bring John Mark. I, I want him near me, right? And then unfortunately, you've got Demas. Demas is mentioned in Colossians and Philemon as in that band of brothers, started faithful. He's one of the trusted, loyal guys. But now all of a sudden, he's left him. Lo loved the things of this world, I'm out of here. Kind of a mixed bag, but here's what I wanted you to see, though, in that. Look at how many more are in that list that were faithful and remain faithful. Because at times, all we can do, right, in those crucible kind of moments, is only look at the negative, only look at the ones that are disappointing us. And I want you to see he lists far more truly faithful, faithful people, right? Here's the bigger point that I want us to think about as, as we step out of that beatific vision back into the difficulty that we're facing, the presence 
of faithful and true brothers and sisters is just of paramount um, need for us in those moments. We were not made, intended to go through trials alone. Make every effort. He says, make every, Timothy, I need you. Please come soon. I don't know if you're going through a trial or if you know somebody that's going through a trial right now. Can I just say, don't leave them alone. And if you are somebody who feels that aloneness, don't assume that other people know that or understand that. Reach out and ask for presence. Guys, the Apostle Paul, you don't get any more spiritual, is saying, Timothy, I need you. Drop everything and come to me. You know what I'm saying? Guys, if you're facing trial or if you know somebody that's undergoing trial, your presence, it's not because Timothy had something to say that was going to unlock all the mysteries of the universe. No, no. His presence, just who he is as that beloved son. And Paul's saying, please come. I just need people that I love to take me by the hand what vulnerability, you know what I mean? What, a, what an openness of, of his own insecurity and need for somebody else. Guys, that should be us. That should be our posture. Help me. I feel like I'm, I'm drowning. I'm suffocating in my loneliness and despair right now. Help me. But there's another kind of, you know, there's presence. And then I also want to talk about presence, like with the TS, like gifts, presence, so maybe that'll help you remember. There's two things that Paul asks for, presence, like people, and presence. He says, bring me my cloak and bring me these, these scrolls, these parchments. The cloak, you guys, is because he's cold, and jailers aren't taking care of him. He, he's on his own. So uh, these cloaks that he's describing are these first century, there's big, thick, woolen thing. Think of a poncho. They're more like ponchos. They're kind of big blankets with a hole in it that you can wrap up and keep them. He's like, man, I, I could really use a coat right now. It's very practical. I, I'm really cold. I'm shivering. Can, can somebody bring me my coat? I left it. And then these scrolls and parchments. We're not even sure exactly what they were. Were they, you know, scrolls that had the words of Jesus, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, the kind of thing that he was treasuring? Are they letters that he was still writing or maybe letters that others had given to him? Are they maybe blank parchments because he wants to keep writing letters to others? And these, we're not sure, but whatever it is, they are a treasure to him. They're not even practical, right? It's not like the coat, but they're important to him and, and he wants them. Here's what I'm saying. You guys, some of you are just naturally gift givers. You just know what's either needed or just would make somebody feel real good. I'm looking at one right here. You're an amazing gift giver. What I'm saying is, you guys, don't underestimate, one, your human presence, but also gifts, presence in those Sometimes those can be incredibly meaningful. Maybe it's really practical. Maybe it's meals, right? Maybe it's something they need. Maybe it's help on the house, whatever. Great. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just something symbolic, something that would just warm their heart. I just want you to know, guys, we aren't intended to go through trials alone. And if we're in the family of God, we need each other. Paul is being super instructive here, and I love it. Ask for help. Look for those that need help. Okay, here's the next stepping stone. If that's the first step, like that, that 
awareness of how much we need each other as we, as we come off the mountaintop experience with God and face our trials. We need each other. I want you to look at the next verses with me, starting in uh, verse 14. Let me read 14 to 16. Alexander the coppersmith did great harm to me. The Lord will repay him according to his works. Watch out for him yourself because he strongly opposed our words. Like this is strong stuff. Watch out for yourself. I'm going to be gone. Alexander's still alive and kicking. Timothy, watch out for him. And then he says this, at my first defense, no one stood by me. Everyone deserted me. May it not be counted against them. Here's the next stepping stone, the next helpful hint I think Paul gives us here, guys. There might be bad guys involved. There might be. In your situation, there might be some real bad guys. But not as many as you might imagine. <laughs> there really are bad guys, probably not as many as you might imagine. Here's the reason I say it that way. Um, one, it's pretty shocking. Paul names a name, right? 2,000 years later, we still understand Alexander the coppersmith was a bad guy. <laughs> like that... How would you like your name to be in the book of the ages as just objectively a bad dude, okay? So he shows up in 1 Timothy, he's called a blasphemer. A blasphemer is someone who intentionally takes the name of God or the word of God and desecrates it, vandalizes it, takes aim at God himself and says poisonous things about God or about... God's word. So he's already that. We find out later as we keep reading, this guy is shipwrecking people's faith. I'm saying objectively, he belongs in the category of bad guy. <laughs> okay. And so when you find that there's a true bad guy around, name them. Say what's true. I, I've just been reading through the gospel of Luke and I was a little startled again one, one time this last week. You get to Luke chapter 13, and some Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, hey, Herod's coming after you. You got to run. You got to run, run and hide because this is the same Herod that has just killed John the Baptist. They're like, you got to get out of here, you know? And Jesus says, you tell that fox, <laughs> I got some work to do. And when I'm done with my work, then I'll move on. Like, did Jesus just call him a name? I think he did. You know, Jesus, you tell that fox. Well, in the first century, a fox had somewhat of the same kind of connotation that we would have, maybe sly kind of thing, just like in the first century. But it had an even more uh, kind of substantial idea behind it. A fox was like a little snarly animal that thought it was as big as a lion, okay? You know how a fox, you're like, oh, that's a cute, oh, I saw a fox today. It's cute, you know, this orange little, you know. But, it, but if you get it mad, you know, it thinks it's a lion, you know. So sometimes in the first century, if you called somebody a fox, it was somebody of little consequence but thought they were big stuff, you know what I mean? So he's like, hey, tell Herod, oh, I see your teeth. Ooh, scary. God of the universe. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, if there's somebody that's objectively a bad guy, okay, Herod, bad guy. Alexander, bad guy. Say it out loud. It's okay. But I do want to say this. Be careful that they are truly a bad guy and not just bad in your opinion. <laughs> One of the other things that I read in Luke 
as I was going through is out of Luke 70. Jesus says this, hey, don't judge so you won't be judged. Because listen to this, you will be judged by the very same standard with which you judge others. And you will be measured by the same measure that you use. Here's what I'm saying. Paul could easily take that standard, look at himself and be like, nope, he's the bad guy. (laughs) Jesus could do that. I'm just saying, it's okay to do that. It's okay to call out bad guys, for sure. Just be careful, because whatever standard you're using, that's also, you got to look in the mirror with that same standard. But if you get through that process, I'm saying, it's okay to say, there's bad guys. But here's what I want to also bring out from 2 Timothy 4. Guys, there's one true bad guy, Alexander. The rest of them, look what he says, and he's like, hey, God's going to have to take care of him at the judgment. But look at that again in verse 16. At my first defense, no one stood by me. Everyone deserted me. May it not be counted against them. Guys, think generously of people. Yeah, there's really bad guys out there. Name them. It's okay. But then there's a next group of people that honestly, they're just weak. They just get caught up in stuff, right? Jesus had the same thing. Remember right toward the end? Jesus says, hey, I'm about to be turned over to the bad guys, and I'm going to get arrested, flogged, and then I'm going to be killed. And what do all of his disciples say? Dude, I'm with you, Jesus. I will die with you. I am not leaving you. No, some of you guys are going to leave me. Not me. I'm there. I'm not. What happens? The moment Judas comes on the scene and betrays Jesus, what happens to every single disciple? They scatter like roaches, right? They are gone in a moment. Why? Because they were terrible people, unredeemable people, enemies of Jesus. No, they were weak. They made a bad decision. They they got caught up in the moment. They lost their head and they ran. You think differently about weak people, people that act very humanly and get caught up in the moment. You think very differently about about them than you do the real enemies out there, right? Paul's looking at these guys that all abandoned him. He's like, oh, you know what? I, I, I got nothing against them at all. I get it. They're just weak. Can we just admit something right now? We are all weak. You've all done it. I've done it, Right? We get caught up in that moment. We want to save our own skin. We get scared. We get caught up in the drama, whatever. I just love this. May it not be held against them. Jesus even looked out from the cross. And you know what he said in that moment? Father, forgive them. A lot of these guys yelling at me right now, they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. Do you remember I I said take note of that when Stephen is getting stoned? What does Stephen say? What are his last words? Oh, forgive them. (laughs) They don't know what they're doing. They got caught up in the moment. These are guys who are murdering him. (laughs) But honestly, some of them are going to wake up the next day and be like, what did I do? You know, and maybe even come to Christ, right? You think differently about those people that are kind of getting caught up. I'm just saying, guys, and maybe I'm saying this especially in the mirror. There are enough real bad guys out there. Don't keep adding to the list. Sometimes when you're hurting, sometimes when you're in that pit of sorrow or despair or fear or whatever, 
you start getting mad at everybody. Have you been there? You start getting mad at everybody. Why didn't they call me? Those cowards. Why didn't they stick up for me? Why and all of a sudden, your group of people who become bad guys and are, you're mad at just keep increasing. Here's what I believe the apostle is trying to say. No, the number of real bad guys in there, very small and few. Don't add to their list. Think generously of people. Think with forgiveness toward people, right? Let's keep our focus on, on Christ. Don't add to the pile of enemies. You don't need them. You need friends. Which takes me to the very last couple of verses here. Verse 17. Look at this. This, this is so beautiful. Because a bunch of people left him, stranded. There he is in a jail by himself. Verse 17. But the Lord stood with me, strengthened me, so that I might fully preach the word and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. In fact, the Lord will rescue me from every evil work and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Look, you know what he's saying there? Rescue me from every evil work. You know what he's talking about? Ultimately, my, my ultimate rescue is going to be what's going to happen in just a few days when I get killed. <laughs> He's going to rescue me from every evil attempt and welcome me into his eternal kingdom. Jesus, you're never going to leave me. Even in that moment, you're never going to leave me. You're always there with me. Think about that. What were Paul's last words right when he was under the pressure, the heat of the moment, the pressure? Was it... Man, let me tell you again about Alexander. Just raging, you know. Or was it, you cowards, you tell every one of those dudes. I'm so mad at them. You know, is that what was going on in Paul's mind? No, he's like, bad guy, watch out for him. Might hurt you too. These other dudes, ah, forgive them. Because you know what? All those people on the human stage of things are kind of fading. Jesus, you've never left me. I sense your presence now more than I ever have. And you know what he did? You know what his last words were? Preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. You get the idea that every jailer, every guy, even the guy that was about to take his life was hearing the good news about Jesus. Not all the venom about how all the injustices that were going on to him, pointing everybody that he saw to Jesus. You guys, I'll never forget the moment. My, um, so my, my wife, Teresa, is one of 13. I, I think I've mentioned that before because it's pretty <laughs> stunning even now to think about. And the matriarch, the head of that whole clan, well, the number one, Bev, the oldest of all 13, she came to Christ uh, several years after Teresa and I did, and it was glorious, and she just exuded gospel, exuded joy. She got cancer. This is several years ago now. She got cancer, and, and ultimately, cancer took her life. But I'll never forget this one moment. There were many, but this one moment, she just exuded such joy, even as she's wasting weight. At, at one point, her, her cancer had come roaring back, and I think it was a PA at this point in the hospital that having to break the news to her. But because Bev was such a lovely person, this PA is like, crying as she's telling Bev what, what's true. And Bev, in that moment, grabs her hands and says, 
oh, sweetheart, it's okay. You guys are so good at what you do. I can't believe how great you are at helping all of us know what's going on. And it's okay. Jesus is going to take me home. I get to go home. Don't cry. Like, here is Bev, like, hearing some of the most catastrophic news imaginable, offering gospel help to the one who's bringing the news to her. You know what I'm saying? That's what Paul did. All of a sudden, all the injustices and the bad guys, they all just kind of faded off to the scene because, can we just read that again? Look at again, verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil work and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, Paul goes on to say, hey, greet Prisca and Aquila, the household of Anisiphorus, Erastus remained in Corinth, left Trophimus sick. Oh, bummer, he's sickless. Pray for Trophimus. But look at this, make every effort to come before winter. Eubulus greets you, Prudence, Linus, Claudia, all these guys are saying, oh, Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. All of a sudden, the joy of the Lord just kind of filled his sails again. Such confidence. So guys, a couple of weeks ago, I even had you guys, some of you, if you're really in the midst of trial, even hold your hands up, like, I, I feel it, right? May these words guide you first to look for those beatific vision moments. Look for those times that Jesus will come to you. Like maybe at no other time in your life have you felt the presence of Jesus like in those darkest times. And then as you step away from those moments and back into the real world of your trial, may God's word guide us even then to honor him, to speak well of him, And through that, even your most dire moment might be the key to unlock gospel opportunities for scores of people that because of your trial, life is opened up to them, right? Oh, may God make it so. Will you stand with me? Let's let's pray this into our souls, guys. Jesus, I just, I just want to dwell in those words. You, Lord, will rescue us from every evil work. That's our hope. Things might get worse. But there is nothing, there is no evil work that you will not be able to conquer and rescue us from, Lord. Oh, what hope that brings. You're going to bring me safely into your heavenly kingdom. That is sure. To you be the glory, Lord Jesus, forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen.